This is the Bell Books and Stories podcast with me, Kay Hutchison. Welcome. You're listening to the Bell Media podcast. This is Kay Hutchison with Books and Stories, where I take a look at some great books and the stories behind the books. This first episode is being remotely recorded due to the coronavirus pandemic, so please forgive any minor sound issues and background noises we may encounter along the way. We're going to start off with Hurricane Hutch's Top 10 Ships of the Clyde. Some of you may know that Captain Robin Hutchison had a maritime career spanning many decades. He was a captain on the Clyde for over 30 years and his nickname was Hurricane Hutch and the book is his memoir, A Social History of the Clyde, told through the top 10 ships that he loved. He was also my father. So in today's episode, we're going to talk about something quite close to my heart. The Clyde and the ships and one ship in particular, the turbine steamer Queen Mary II. The Queen Mary was in fact my father's favourite ship, but in his book, another ship took top place, as it had a special place in his heart. That ship was the Maid of Argyle, and it was the first ship he was master on. So the Queen Mary was just pipped to the post for top place. But I have to say, he always told us that the Queen Mary, as a ship, was the best ship he'd ever sailed on as it was designed by seagoing sailors, and the sailors who sailed really did know best. Today, I'm lucky to have two great guests. First, I'm delighted to have one of the key people helping bring to life the future vision for the Queen Mary. Michael McLaughlin is Head of Tourism on the board of the Friends of Queen Mary. He is also a lecturer in hospitality and events at the City of Glasgow College, which incorporates the old nautical college where my father actually studied. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Kay. Pleasure to be here. And we also have with us today author Richard Dijkstra. Hello, Richard. Uh, Hi, Kay. Nice to be here too. Richard is best known for his children's books, but he was actually the person who worked closely alongside my father and helped my father write the Hurricane Hutch book. It was a great collaboration But what a job that turned out to be for Richard. A delight and a challenge at the same time. More of which later. My father relied heavily on Richard and in turn Richard and I relied heavily on the knowledge and source materials from a number of important organisations and people. The Clyde River Steamer Club, the late great Ian McCrory, CalMac historian, the Riverside Museum and even the Imperial War Museum. The book was warmly received around the country and further afield. It was reprinted and is still going strong. So, Michael, I have lots of questions for you. I'm really interested in the work you're doing. But first, people can see the Queen Mary now um, on the Clyde. Where exactly is she? She's actually berthed down at the Glasgow Science Centre. She's she's docked just on the edge, right on the knuckle of the quay. You can actually see her very prominently if you happen to be passing along the Clydeside Expressway or if you're travelling along Govan Road. You can't miss the very, very distinctive twin black and buff funnels. Bit of a landmark. And how did you first get involved, Michael? What was this, the thing that started you off there? 
Well, I think, uh, Kay, like most Glaswegians, the, the Clyde and Clyde shipping has, uh, has always kind of resonated with me. It's, you know, it's kind of in a Glaswegian's blood. So back in, uh, I think it was May 2016, as a, as a bystander, I was down at Greenock and I witnessed the, uh, the TS Queen Mary returning to the Clyde, I think for the first time in around 35 years. So it was a very, it was a very moving, emotive, and very poignant scene, because obviously she, she really is the, the last of her kind. So when they brought her back to Glasgow just after uh, dry docking, a bit of a spruce up, I jumped at the chance to take a tour. So whilst on the tour, I got talking to the the then captain, and I told him that I happened to work at City of Glasgow College, and very very quickly they came back to me and said. How would you feel about getting students involved? Education is very, very important um, for the uh, the campaign and for the for the trustees. So they asked me to formalise the tour program, which I did the following year, and got City of Glasgow College hospitality and event students involved in supporting and delivering the tours. Oh, that sounds great! So is that what it means when you're responsible for tourism at the Queen Mary? You're actually making sure that all of that runs really smoothly and who do you work with day to day as well well, on a day-to-day basis, I um, I actually joined the, um, I was very fortunate enough to join the Board of Trustees last September. Um, so the board comprises of six trustees, including Ian Sim. Now, Ian Sim is our current chairman, and it's generally Ian that I liaise with. And Ian was one of the, the founding trustees of the charity. And he was instrumental in actually getting the ship back to Glasgow and getting her to this stage in the, the restoration process. Which, which is which is huge, isn't it? It's really, really been a, yes. a monumental effort. I mean, a lot of people must have thought that that was something that was just impossible to do. It's taken quite a lot of you know, push to get it, things to move forward. The, um, the vessel was actually sitting after she had... Um, after she had closed, she had um, after she had retired from Clyde service, she ultimately went down to the Thames and was opened up as a, a pub restaurant. Uh, she was run by Buzz Charrington, and she was you know she was very very successful in that role. But there came a point where they decided that they wanted to use the the berth, which was in uh, central London. On the Thames, they wanted to use it for a water bus service. So the poor old Queen Mary um, was retired yet again, and then she was she was kind of uh, punted along the, the river to Tilbury. And sadly, that's where she languished for about oh seven years, and she was in a very very sorry state when when she came back. So yes, it has been it has been very very challenging. Um, Michael, unlike um, another famous ship of the Clyde that most of us know, um, your plans are, are not for her to set sail again. Can you tell us about that? Because obviously the, the people who, like me who just sort of think, well, she looked fantastic when she was sailing up. Um, it would be lovely to see her set sail, but it, that's not the plan for her. Okay, if uh, wishes were horses, we'd all be, we'd all be riding around. It would be. <laughs> It would be absolutely fantastic. Um, I was actually very, very fortunate. The the last uh, trip that she had to dry dock, um, they, they put me to work, but I had the opportunity to actually sail back on her, which was absolutely amazing. So I, I know what that feels like because she's, she's such a large ship. She was the, the largest of all of the Clyde steamers. But 
um, it's very, very important to kind of just reiterate that the plan was never ever to actually have a sale again, because quite simply, it would be cost prohibitive. Mm-hmm. Um, the you know the, the the logistics, the cost of actually putting in new engines, because sadly, when she became a, a static attraction, they removed the engines; they, they didn't need them anymore. <laughs> um, and when just to give you a bit of context, just to bring the ship up from London. And to to strip her out and get the necessary um, repairs done, it's already um, been about three million pounds have been um, have been used used up yes, for that. So the cost of re-engineering the vessel would be would be mind blowing. So instead, what we're hoping to do is um, is actually open her open her up um restore restore the vessel to our aesthetic splendor if you like mm-hmm. she's she's 87 now <laughs> um but she's still incredibly you know as a, as recent scans laser scans have uh, confirmed she's an incredibly sound ship but what we're what we're going to do is um we're restoring that splendor that i mentioned and we're going to make it into a heritage destination, an education centre, and a fairly amazing first-class dining and event experience. Oh, that sounds fantastic. And it will be a great location up there for her too. Absolutely. Just now, as I mentioned, she's she's docked on the edge of the quay, but the intention will be to bring her round and directly in front of the Glasgow Science Centre uh, next to the Millennium Bridge, which means she'll actually be in view of the Scottish event campus. So she's going to be far, far more prominent than she is just now. That's brilliant. And um, I was very, very lucky because you took my brother Glenn and I um, on quite an inspiring and moving tour a few months back and brought back a lot of memories for me as a, as a child. But Glenn and I um, were basically shown every area of the ship. And although obviously in the years that um, uh, were between me sailing and her as a, as a child with my family and, and actually amazed at the, the splendour of the place, um, there is a lot of work, believe me, there is a lot of work to be done. But I think the vision is actually very inspiring. And Glenn and I both, we had lots of t- photographs taken. And also Michael and uh, Crawford Patterson, who's the vice chairman, he took us round and, and we actually shared a lot of stories. It brought back so many wonderful memories. So that was a that was a great day. Can I ask, Michael, what has changed since my brother and I visited last year? Obviously, it does. It is very expensive to do any changes, but perhaps there have been some things you could refer to. Okay, your your visit with Glenn, um, certainly for myself and Crawford, was particularly poignant because I had I'd looked at some pictures of your of your of your late father. Um, the former former captain, and Glenn actually bears an uncanny resemblance <laughs> to your father. So you know that was you know that that was particularly special seeing him standing on the bridge and uh, standing in the <laughs> captain's cabin. It was actually you know, it was quite quite moving. Yeah. So since you were um, last on board, we have managed to secure another five hundred thousand pounds of private funding, and that will focus on the design phase. 
So if you like, we've done all of the, or most of the non-glamorous work, all of the stripping out, taking out the, the London fixtures and fittings, stripping her right back to the um, the bare hull. So now we're, what, we're, what we're planning now are the interiors. Um, when the ship first came into service back in 1933, she was described by the press of the day as being palatial. She very, very quickly earned the accolade of Britain's finest pleasure steamer. So what we are hoping to do is recreate some of that elegance and bring that kind of art deco romance back. So it's really, really exciting and interesting for us at the moment. That's terrific. That sounds great. Um, I just want to talk a little bit with Richard and obviously Richard you've been closely involved with uh, helping my father write his book perhaps you could set the scene for people unfamiliar with the Clyde and the role of the ships back in the 1930s um, at the time the Queen Mary was built a little bit like Michael was saying that you know this palatial ship in the middle of uh, this wonderful heyday of the ships. Could you tell us a bit about that? Well, I mean, I, I suppose one of the key things to be aware of is that the Clyde was probably much better served by cruising ships and uh, service ships than any of the other estuaries. You, yes, there was lots of traffic in the Thames and, you know, in Bristol Channel and places like that. But in Glasgow, I think it was unique because not only did you have all of that kind of pleasure position, but also there, there were all these islands that had to be serviced and therefore there was kind of lifeline services. So there was the connections in with the, the railway, but also in some places that could only really be reached by the steamers. And you, you know, in the kind of heyday of the steamers, there were probably... 20, 30 boats uh, in peak season serving all the different communities. And there were easily 20, 30,000 people being transported around on a daily basis. That must have been absolutely fantastic to see. Now, but she was built um, at a very odd time. It was the Great Depression, wasn't it? Can you say something about that, Richard? Uh, well, Michael also might be able to talk about this, but obviously the, the, one of the issues there was that uh, she was actually built in uh, 1933. Well, that was really the kind of height of the Depression. I think unemployment in Glasgow was about 30% at the time. So the idea, in some respects, of building and launching what was, as Michael just uh, described it, a palatial steamer, was really quite a gamble on, uh, on the part of uh, the owners. Uh, certainly, it, sorry, Richard. It, it certainly was the um, the shipping company that ordered the vessel, Williamson Buchanan. They believe it or not, actually get a very very cheap deal. And that was because uh, Denny of Dumbarton, the T.S. Queen Mary's uh, builders, um, they had built uh, a steamer, the Duchess of Montrose, in 1930. And they were reasonably certain that they were going to get the order for our sister ship, the, um, the Duchess of Hamilton. Um, they were so confident, in fact, that they ordered a lot of the materials. They ordered the timber, a lot of the steelwork. But sadly, it actually went to a competitor, it went to Harland and Wolf. So they were left with all of this materials. So they actually offered the Queen Mary or to build the Queen Mary for some £15,000 cheaper than um, the Duchess of uh, the Duchess of Hamilton. 
so they've got a good deal. So I think that that possibly possibly contributed to it as well. So the, so beautiful teak decks and all that kind of stuff. Mm, absolutely, yeah. And the other thing I remember from my father, Rich, was he was all often talking about how um, the people who were actually working on the ship really took a great pride in keeping it up to the, the most beautiful standards. And they, they actually, sailors had little, what they called wee crofts that they were responsible for, which I thought was a lovely idea because there was a real pride in, in their work. Yes, I mean, I think that one of the things uh, is that obviously for sailors, uh, a lot of what they have to do is actually sort of try to keep the, the boat in good condition as well. Uh, and they, they had these bits that they were responsible for. And I think your father, uh, he was first mate originally, that, that he would be going round and actually checking that everything was uh, ship shape. And I think if people uh, knew uh, Kay's father, I mean, even uh, when he was uh, well retired, he was still quite an imposing figure. Uh, and I'm sure that the crew made sure that their bits of brass were all... Uh, beautifully polished up and uh, you know there wasn't a, anything that shouldn't be there kind of thing i think at any given time richard the um the count on the crew was anything between 38 and 42 <laughs> and you might think that's you know that's quite a lot but um if you actually look at the queen mary and if you include the bridge she actually had five separate decks and that is a lot of area to cover and um you know, back when she um, initially went into service, our passenger capacity was a, a massive 2,086, which is, you know, quite extraordinary. So it, it required a lot of care and a lot of maintenance. Can I just ask, um, uh, the, the west of Scotland generally seems to be a real centre for preserving the UK's nautical heritage. Um, obviously the Queen Mary, but the, the Waverley, the Maid of the Loch, and hopefully the Sir Walter Scott. Well, why do you think people are so attracted to these ships and wanting to see them preserved? I think it's it's more than simple nostalgia. I think it, it, obviously cruising itself, um, obviously in the, the large cruise ships, has become increasingly popular. You know, and at the end of the day, we are an island. People people are drawn to the water. Mm-hmm. But because when they were when they were built. And when Britain was such a huge global force in, um, you know, in, in, in shipbuilding and in manufacturing, it, it carried a, a massive amount of pride with it. So people feel this affinity with um, older vessels because, you know, it takes them back to a time when this really, you know, like meant something. And, uh, you know, the because the the amount of vessels remaining are so few and far between even even stepping aboard even with the queen mary being a static attraction for them that will be taking them back to a different time different values um and you know they want to lose themselves in it mm. they want to connect with with that part of uh, you know like british history it's quite funny because my my father always said oh she was you know she ran like a, a sewing machine she was so fantastic but actually when i uh, look at the queen mary i mean i i think aesthetically from the outside as well i mean she's a bit like a tardis because you go in and she's massive inside massive areas but it's very very beautiful shapes a very very elegant ship 
And I think that's one of the things that I've always remembered about it. Not all of them are as elegant as the Queen Mary. Richard, I, I'd like to ask you if you could just give us um, a little bit of a better idea of what the Hurricane Hutch's Top Ten Ships of the Clyde is like as a book. Well, your father had some great stories uh, and his experience is really unique, you know, that he went from deep sea uh, to coming to the Clyde as it was really making its transition from the steamers through to the point-to-point car ferries. And, you know, he was there for 30 years. Uh, He was in command of all of the boats at one time or other. In fact, there was one famous time when uh, he had to switch from boat to boat during a three-week shift pattern, and he was all, he captained eighteen separate boats uh, in three weeks. You know, one uh, one day at a time, each boat very different. Uh, but to say that he also was someone who's a great storyteller, so the book is as much social history as it is a book about the ships. And we agreed that a good way of trying to tell his story and the story of the Clyde, really, was actually through a list of his personal favourites. So these are all ships that he was in command of at one time or another. And say we decided the good thing to do was actually have a top 10. So we've got, you know, the Queen Mary, the Caledonia, the Jupiter, Talisman, Caledonian Isles, and of course the Waverley. Although, you know, it's in his, one of the top 10, obviously, but he always used to have a bit of criticism of it because it was quite a difficult boat to steer, evidently, and perhaps that was partly to do with the fact that it had been built just immediately after the war. Anyway, all of the ships had their idiosyncrasies and their characters. Uh, and, you know, in fact, the stories of the ships themselves, some have happy endings, some sad. The other thing is, I suppose I should say, is that there's actually 11 ships in the book because we've also included the Hebridean Princess, you know, that's the luxury cruise ship that goes up the Western Isles. In fact, it goes around the country. Uh, and he was relief master for a number of years before he retired. Uh, and, of course, the reason for the Hebridean Princess being included in the Clyde uh, is that it was actually originally a Calmac boat. It was the Columba. He was in command of it uh, often. It would come down into the Clyde and be a relief boat. But when it was the Hebridean Princess, he was actually asked to pilot it through the Kyles of Butte. You know, it's a very narrow uh, channel, very difficult channel. And of course, being a Clyde captain, he was also a pilot. So he had that license, he could take it. And I think also that the uh, company was using it as a bit of uh, audition to see whether he would be suitable for you know, being the captain of a cruise ship. And of course, he passed that with flying colours because of all these stories and things. Anyway, so the book itself is really nice. You know, it's a hardback book. Uh, it's coffee table feel, 80 pages, full colour. Very good, very good. And of course, it's a, a nice part of the story as well. I mean, the last couple of times I've been in Glasgow to visit the Queen Mary, um, it's often sitting there quite near to the Waverley, which, um, as you mentioned, is the it's the last um, ocean-going paddle steamer in the world. It's not actually sailing this year because it had a major refit but there's something nice about those two ships being side by side even although one was obviously my my father's favorite one to sail on and the other one wasn't quite so good in that sense so thank you very much for that anyway Richard working with dad on the book um 
you were born and brought up in Glasgow, so you probably know quite knew quite a bit already. But how much of the information did you actually know? And was most of the research that you did and working with my father, was it new information that you were learning? Well, uh, I was uh, born in Glasgow, as you say, but I actually I hadn't been on many of the boats. I do remember uh, going, it's actually the Jeannie Deans, uh, sailing down, uh, and it, I can't remember whether it was Bridge Wharf or whatever, but what I do remember is that you also went past for the first few miles, of course, just shipyard after shipyard in those days. That you know, so it, it was actually it was quite exciting to see all the kind of you know sparks flying and all the noise and all that kind of stuff. So I had that kind of feel for things, but actually when I was brought up, we tended not to go to places like Aaron and all that kind of stuff because actually partly my father's business, his customers all went on holiday there, and he was uh, didn't want to spend his holidays with his customers. So all went elsewhere. So therefore, actually, I came to quite a lot of it, really just trying to find the kind of story behind the ships, uh, because it was it was really I was always impressed with the fact that how your your father, uh, you know, really lived and breathed uh, the, on the Clyde and the, that kind of sense of camaraderie within the crews and things like this. And the fun I think they had, actually, despite the fact that it was also quite a hard time. That in a lot of cases, you know, that they had open bridges. Uh, they were expected to sail in all weathers. You know that there's uh, a couple of stories where he was explaining how they before before they had radar, they would actually sail in the fog on the basis of compass bearings and stopwatch timings, knowing you know that you know as long as they were going at X revs, they could. Uh, 47 seconds in they could make a turn and they would hit uh, you know, the, uh, the course they were trying to go to uh, and there was just the, the whole sense of that uh, time was something I was very keen to help him record uh, and as I say that we decided that the way to do that was actually for him to talk about the individual ships and always he would come back to the fact that the Queen Mary was one of his kind of, uh, kind of favourites uh, and he always emphasised the fact that, you know, that as you were saying at the beginning, that it was one of the few boats that really seemed to have real input from uh, sailors in its design and therefore was actually a boat that could be properly managed. Richard, I just want to, to say here, though, that obviously I know my father was kind of obsessed with um, boats as my mum would say, just obsessed with boats. Um, but actually what's nice about the book is that it, it's not just about the ships, it's also about the time. And can you give us an insight into what was involved in putting together what eventually became a coffee table book, um, there's photographs and, and also just ordinary human stories as well, which is what I remember. In the book, we talk about the, the boats and, and what they did, but in each case, we've really got some sort of story which shows how it was linked into just how life was lived in, in those days. Uh, in trying to research it with him, though, there, there were a few things that I had to keep going back to him and just saying, well, did that really happen? Could that, you know, because some of the things were actually 
sort of quite unbelievable, especially, <laughs> you know, that in these days of, uh, you know, health and safety and things like this, that there was a slightly more cavalier attitude. But there was also this underlying position of the fact that, yes, the, uh, we're talking about cruise ships and things like this, but they, these were also ships that were providing uh, you know, real services to these communities. You know, they were lifeline services. And, you know, it was not unusual for crews to be called out in the middle of the night to go and, you know, help uh, take someone to hospital or something like that. You know, sort so, of an, an ambulance run. Yeah, ambulance run, things like that, exactly. So there, so there was uh, th that whole ethos of, sort of built around the service to the community uh, on the Clyde. And I think that was, again, fairly unique within the Clyde because, say, all these island communities or even uh, some of the coastal communities, yes, there were roads, but it was a very long and circuitous route to go from, uh, you know, Dunoon to, to Glasgow uh, by land. The way to go was by sea. And can you, can you tell us uh, a funny anecdote about working with my father when you were helping him put... Um, no, but I mean, it was more the fact that obviously I was uh, in London quite a lot of the time and having to get in contact with him in, in Greenock. And I mean, I think it was partly because he was suffering a bit from rheumatism at the time, but, uh, you know, and I think, you know, he had the, as people did, uh, have the phone out in the hall. So whenever you phoned <laughs> him up, it always took a long time for him to come and answer the phone. And, you know, it was, oh, it's you. Kind of thing. So, it's you again. More, it's more not really the way to kind of start that conversation, you know, <laughs> where you're really thinking that you're completely imposing on him when you're starting to ask him. And then he's like, this is 40 years ago. I can't remember this. Kind of but, uh, you know, <laughs> equally, he would then come out with another story. Uh, actually, the worst thing is, and uh, I think he might remember this, that uh, we really had the book all sorted out, you know, so it, it was all ready to go to the printers. Uh, when he happened to just mention the fact that, oh, yeah, and that was the day that uh, your grandmother ended up in the bath. I'm like, okay, what's gun? your story? Yeah, and <laughs> it, it turned out that this was a kind of green at blitz story that they were living out in the country. And... Uh, Part of the defence of Greenock, because obviously it was quite a target during the war, uh, they had decided that they would put large bonfires up on the hills and they would set these bonfires alight when uh, a raid came in. And the idea was to confuse the next wave of bombers who would then see these fires and assume that this is actually Greenock burning kind of thing. Uh, and this happened and it, and it worked. One of the problems was that out in the country is where your dad was living as a small boy. Uh, and so he, they were caught up in the middle of this air raid. He as a small boy was actually uh, sent down into under the stairs, covered under the stairs. Uh, and your grandmother was actually at the kitchen window, so at the bathroom window with a shotgun because she could see these uh, parachutes floating down and she had the view that these were German paratroopers coming and she was taking pot shots uh, out the kitchen, out the bathroom window. Uh, and it turned out that actually what was floating down were parachute mines. So these were, you know, 
very large lumps of explosive basically falling down. She's firing at them. But actually, one of them actually goes into, luckily it was into a bog, uh, and it explodes. She, the blast throws her backwards into the bath, uh, and the house basically only survives because the blast was slightly muffled in the bog. But the whole house is then covered with mud and turf and stuff. Uh, but anyways, the, this story just came out. Uh, after we had the whole thing was set, and we basically had to find space to put that paragraph in to encapsulate that story. <laughs> yeah, and it was known as the what I remember is it was known as known as the mud mud house, um, and it was actually in the newspaper. We still had a copy of that that article, but um, I think the the only really interesting thing about my dad's childhood was that he kind of ran away to sea at the age of nine from um, his house there. And that was how that story sort of linked into the whole, um, to the whole Hurricane Hutch's top 10 ships of the Clyde. Um, thank you, Richard. Um, obviously, Michael, you've talked uh, already quite a bit, which is really interesting about bringing the Queen Mayor back to Glasgow and, you know, Ian Sim and his vision and others and the effort, huge efforts made to make that happen. Um, I'm just curious, do you, do you work with any other groups restoring ships of the past? Is there collaboration or are each of these projects so completely different and unique that you need separate teams? I'm just curious, really. Well, we, we certainly, um, we do communicate with um, some of the, the other organisations um, and we also endeavour to, you know, like share information or, uh, you know, offer offer support. But that is something that we will hope to do or certainly something that we'll hope to cultivate in the future. What we are doing at the moment is that we're, we're establishing partnerships with, for example, Riverside Museum, we had um, we had a party on from the Scottish Maritime Museum um, a few weeks back. We had the um, the UK Maritime Forum. They um, they had a, a set of tours um, some you know some months back. So we're getting more and more people on board, and that affords us the opportunity to start building these these relationships. So yes, absolutely. You know, if we can offer help, or you know, we're certainly not afraid to ask for help either. <laughs> but yes, these these are collaborations that we we absolutely do want to nurture. And uh, I'm just uh, interested. Obviously, you've talked a little bit about the future plans and. Uh, the particularly going into the exciting part, looking at the interiors and bringing that back to life. But any project like this, it needs as much publicity as possible to get the word out and make sure people are understanding what's coming and when. And um, I'm very aware, often needs the support of some key figures to help make that happen. Can you tell us about any well-known figures that are lending their names to the cause? Well, just uh, just last year, we were very very fortunate indeed to get the the royal patronage of um, Her Royal Highness the Princess Royal Princess Anne, um, which it was again really quite meaningful in that obviously Princess Anne is the great granddaughter of Queen Mary, the uh, the ship's namesake. 
Um, so we have also, um, we have another patron. We have um, the well-loved Scottish actor, Robbie Coltrane, OBE. And the, the Queen Mary, especially when, you know, she was down in London, she had quite, quite the following. So Robert De Niro had been on board. And uh, so apparently he follows the ship. It's, it's, it's true. Um Dame Judy Dench is very fond of the of, of the ship. Um, you know, of Rowan Atkinson. So all of these people that went on board when she was, uh, you know, a bar in a restaurant, have got fond memories. They've got tales to tell. And what we're what we're hoping for is that when the vessel opens, you know, that maybe they'll do some, um, you know, like uh, in video interviews, um, and that will certainly help with the. Um, the promotion of the ship because what you have to remember Kay is you know the the Queen Mary retired back in 1977 so for you know for most people unless you're you know in your in your kind of um, late 40s or early 50s a lot of people don't actually remember her being on the river because mm-hmm. she was removed so suddenly her uh, her fan base if you like moved south with with the, sh- the ship, so we're trying mm-hmm. to bring that back um, to, you know, kind of recreate that that notion of, you know, here here you have the 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 monarch of the Clyde, you know, the, the regal steamer, Queen Mary, and she's, you know, she's here and, you know, come on board. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. How can people get involved um, or even just see around the ship, uh, I guess, in future once the, the, sure. um, the lockdown's lifted? Absolutely. Well, we we actually had some spring tours planned, but they were they were cancelled for mm-hmm. very obvious reasons. So what we what we normally do is we work around the um, the kind of maintenance schedule. Now, because the the campaign is is funded by private donations and by yeah a lot of corporate work in kind sometimes you know like you know if a if, a, if an organization happens to have a, a window they'll say right okay well we'll send in you know some of our our contractors our workers and it, it makes forward planning for the tours a little bit tricky mm-hmm. um but usually what we try and do is have a, a weekend of tours every every um four to eight weeks so once the restrictions are lifted and it's safe to get the the public back on board again we will be advertising the tours on our facebook page and also through eventbrite and anything else that people can do to help the ship's restoration i mean if if they have some memorabilia or family connection or anything like that is you know a a sort of silver (laughs) gravy boat from a trip or something like that what should they do well we will be having um a lot of onboard um exhibitions which will some of them will will be static some will rotate um so if anybody has anything um that they would like to donate to the ship you know be it from the williamson buchanan era be it from the caledonian steam packet company era or even the calmac era we would you know we would be more than happy to 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 receive those things so that the um you know the visitors or visitors can actually enjoy them and when we put them on display so if anybody has anything um, that they would, you know, like to, to donate, if you send an email to trustees at tsqueenmary.org.uk, then myself or Ian will get in touch with you and we can make the necessary arrangements. 
one other thing, Kay, I meant to say, you, you had asked about volunteering. Mm-hmm. Now, we have, a, we have a hardcore group of volunteers of maybe about 10 or so at the moment. Now, again, once restrictions are lifted, we will be introducing a new Courtiers volunteer program. And again, that will be advertised on Facebook and we will be interviewing for specialist and non-specialist roles. So there will be a lot of opportunity in the coming months um, for people to actually join the, the campaign and to, um, you know, to contribute to the, the restoration process. Wonderful. That, that sounds terrific. Um, and Richard, on the book, is there anything um, for the future that you're thinking about? Uh, well, I suppose the two things really one is the fact that we are going to do an audiobook version of it uh, and again we're kind of waiting to make a more formal announcement because we have to decide exactly who the uh, the reader uh, should be to take the part of your father really on it uh, and then on the other side of, it, of course that we have the spin-off books which are the adventures of captain bobo that uh Obviously, your dad's main uh, name was the Hurricane Hutch, but uh, he also was known by the crew often as Captain Bobo through the fact that uh, he once, uh, one of the other captains brought, I think it's a two, three-year-old, their son up into the bridge and said, oh, this is uh, Robin, say hello to Robin. And the wee boy said, Bobo. And uh, obviously the crew sniggered when they heard that and uh, that was what they started to call him. So as I say, we have this children's book which is based around that character. Well, I think that's a great place to close. Thank you both for being with me today. It was a real pleasure to hear your stories. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Kay. And thank you, Richard. Thanks, yeah. And just a reminder that if any listeners joining us today want to know more about the Queen Mary go to www.tsqueenmary.org.uk. And as for my father's book, Hurricane Hutch's Top 10 Ships of the Clyde, it's available online from all the best bookshops and also from www.scotlandbymail.com. Thank you for listening to the Books and Stories podcast. The podcast was produced by Perrin Sledge and I'm Kay Hutchison. Hope to see you next time. Bye for now. Bye.